welcome back to another episode of Lost Schoolers. I got to apologize in advance again. The air today is, it, it seems louder than normal. I mean, it's a kind of a cooler morning. And so the air in uh, the law school is going off. And it, if there's a fairly loud hum in the background, well, th- that's going to be the reason why. I promise it's nothing to do with the microphone. And there's nothing that I can do about it because I don't have a sound room to record any of these in. But torts, we finished up our discussion about the duty to care and specifically about the failing to act. And yesterday when we had talked about the duty duty of care, the failure to act, we gave a whole lot of examples where people don't usually have a duty to care, but where their duty may arise underneath certain circumstances. And we talked about the restatement towards sections 37 through 44 to go over all of those. And the cases that we talked about are really just examples of... They're really just examples of how the restatement could apply. So, for example, we have a two uh, cases about the school's duty to care for their students. We have Commonwealth v. Peterson, and what happened here is that it was an active shooter. The court actually found here that there was no duty to care, and that's because they had believed that the threat had passed, believing that the person had fled the scene before another accident had occurred. Then we have Hegel or Hegel versus Langsam. What happened here is that a student went to school, started taking drugs at school, uh, got, got involved in a rough crowd, and the parents sued the school, uh, saying you shouldn't have allowed this to happen. The courts disagreed, saying that the schools have a duty to teach, a duty to expound learning, but they don't have a duty to babysit children, so to speak. I'm sorry, they came off a little harsh. They don't have a duty to watch over or regulate the lives of their students. And so there's no duty to care there as well. However, those two cases seem to be more the exception rather than the rule. Most of the time, their schools do have a duty to care for their students. And that's especially true if the schools undertake that responsibility. So if a school has a policy that says that they're going to uh, warn parents about potential suicide threats and then they fail, well, they undertook that responsibility to warn and they have a duty to make sure that they live up to that responsibility that they undertook. We have one more case as far as things that we didn't talk over in depth, but I do want to share it as well. This is Ellis Ayers and Co. versus Hicks. What happened here is that a child got his finger stuck on an escalator. The person wasn't negligent in the child getting his finger stuck in the escalator, but he was slow to respond. And so he had a duty to care, duty of care to prevent the aggravation of an injury on his premises. This is a business owner, an escalator that happened on his premises, and so he had a duty to care there and could be found liable for not fulfilling that duty. 
Then we have two larger cases, and this is where we spend most of our time. I won't go too in-depth with each of them, but I will give an overview of each. We have JS and MS versus RTH. Really sad story. Uh, there was a husband who sexually abused some minors who came to their property, and is criminally charged. But this case is actually talking about his wife and the parents, or rather the children who were abused, uh, sued the wife as well, saying that she had a duty to warn. Uh, warn the parents, warn the kids, uh, report it to authorities, uh, whatever it might be, and that her failure to do so uh, caused her to be the proximate cause of the injuries that had occurred to the children. So what are the big takeaways from this case? Well, the first thing is that a spouse has a duty to warn others of a partner's potential action. So for example, if I'm doing something wrong, my wife may need to report me or vice versa for certain reasons. And there's a couple of things that the court considers. Well, first of all, they're going to consider the foreseeability of the harm. And in this instance, it's especially foreseeable because it is particularized foreseeability. And that means that it was foreseeable that there was a specific target or victim and that the actions could have gone against. Here, in this case, it was the two children. Then we need to ask, was there an opportunity to prevent the harm? We need to look at the comparative interest between the parties and the public policy. And then we need to ask if there's a societal interest in the proposed solutions. What happened in this specific case? Well, there was foreseeability of the harm because the husband had pretty much chosen his targets. And she had admitted that she knew of his past potential actions of impropriety. I don't even know if that's the right word, but it sounded right. She did have an opportunity to prevent the harm uh, because she could have confronted him, could have told the parents, could have reported him to authorities. All these things could have prevented the harm. And then we need to look at the interest between the parties and social public policy. What is the interest of the wife here? What interests are we trying to protect? Well, courts say that there's a sanctity in marriage meaning courts don't want to get involved in marriage. They want to allow husbands and wives and uh, to be able to work in their own way without needing to regulate one another too specifically. And so courts recognize that there's the sanctity in marriage. But in this instance, they also recognize that society has a distinct interest in protecting protecting children, and specifically protecting children from abuse. Uh, protecting children from abuse of neighbors, abuse of family, abuse of relatives, abuse from acquaintances. And in fact, there, in this case, there was a statute that required abuse to be reported. And so the courts recognize that there are these two conflicting interests where if you take on this public policy societal value, then you could be undermining the sanctity of marriage a little bit, 
or vice versa, where if you take on the sanctity of marriage, then you'll be undermining this public policy value. The courts weigh these two things and they say public, the society, would value more from protecting the interests of the youth. And that's the fourth step. What societal interest is there in the proposed solutions? And the societal interest in here, in this case, was to protect the youth. And so because of those reasons, the wife has a duty to warn the children, the parents of the children, confront the spouse, report him to authorities, whatever it might be, to actually resolve this issue. And that's AJS versus MS and RTH. Our last case is Interisoft versus Regents of University of California. This, when I was reading this case, this is just a little side note. I think it's kind of fun. We recently did a legal writing memo, and our assignment was whether or not a psychiatrist had a duty to warn. We were given five cases to research. None of these cases were Tarasov, but all of these cases actually quoted from Tarasov. And why did they quote from Tarasov? Well, Tarasov was the first case that actually talks about a psychiatrist's duty to warn in a particular way. I won't be able to give all the takeaways from Tarasov that easily, though, unfortunately, because there are some parts of it that I just don't understand. But I will go through my notes and try and expound this as clearly as possible. So, for therapy, there are two people involved. There's the psychiatrist and there's the patient. These two individuals have a special relationship. Also, the patient has relationships with other people. Good relationships, bad relationships. And the question that we're going to ask, partially, is does the psychiatrist have a duty to any of those people that their patients might have? And we'll get into a duty to do what later, but the answer to that question is no. The psychiatrist has a duty to the patient, but not a duty to third parties. But, sorry, psychiatrist has a special relationship with the patient, but not a special relationship with third parties. But the courts find it appropriate to put on a duty of care to psychiatrists, and there's several reasons that are provided. Let's first talk about the psychiatrist's argument why they shouldn't have a duty to warn potential third parties of an impending danger from a patient. The first reason is that they don't want to breach patient confidentiality. The reason for this is because it would break the trust of the patient that they have with the psychiatrist. The patient would be gone. Uh, You tell somebody else what the patient has been telling you, and you're never going to see the patient again. And the uh, con of that is the patient wouldn't get the help that they need. 
second. There was a couple of months, in this particular case, Tarasov, there was a couple of months where the patient had been released before he actually ended up attacking the victim. And so the passage of time here could break the proximate cause chain that would hold the psychiatrist liable. And the third reason why the psychiatrist argues that they shouldn't be liable is because they don't want to provide too many unnecessary warnings. And what that means is if you provide a warning and it's actually not that beneficial of a warning, the threat isn't credible, then you're going to be scaring a ton of people for no reason at all. And you want to avoid scaring all those people. The courts look at these things and they're weighing the pros and the cons, and they ultimately decide that the psychiatrists do have a duty to warn third persons due to the special relationship that the psychiatrist might have with the patient. There's going to be exceptions to this, obviously. Uh, the patient will need to have identified specifically who their potential target is, that person's going to have to be reasonably found to be worn, and the threat's going to have to be determined to be credible. But ultimately, psychiatrists, because of their special relationship with patients, do have a duty to third parties as well. And that is our duty to care. And that sums up everything that we've talked about there. Starting next week, we're going to get into a new chapter. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice, and with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.